folks. Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, and we've got some good stuff for you. Ed Flash Ference and a lot of Amazon news is on the docket today, so let's get started. Um, Ed Flash Ference is the host of America's Workforce. It is the only daily labor radio program in America and has been on the air since 1993, according to their website, which is amazing. Um, Supplying listeners with useful, relevant input into their daily lives through fact-finding features, in-depth interviews, informative news segments, and practical consumer reports. The program airs in Cleveland, Ohio, and is available wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on awfradio.com. He's also our next guest. Flash, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for uh, for, uh, calling me today and being on your uh, report. I'll tell you, it's great to be on in Alabama. We, We need more unions down there, so anything we can do to make it happen, let's make it happen. Okay, brother? Absolutely. That's the goal. That's the goal for sure. Uh, So funny enough, you had a whole other career in radio before launching America's Workforce in 93. You were uh, you were reading the news on like a popular morning show on WMMS out of Cleveland. Is that right? That's right. Um, I started my radio career back in 1973. Let me go. A little bit before that, back in the 60s, I was part of the rock and roll revolution with the Beatles coming out the doors, all the great bands that exploded out of uh, England and then the United States. And uh, I always dreamed of uh, going into radio. I mean, I was just obsessed with radio. And uh, in fact, when I was at uh, high school, Normandy High School in Parma, Ohio, I got involved in the audio-visual department, and in my senior year, I did the morning announcements. So I, I just kept gravitating toward that, and then I went to Cleveland State University, joined the campus radio station, and lo and behold, here I am, a sophomore. Um, with a year under my belt, there was an opportunity to join WHK and WMMS. And, and the reason for that is because there was some new ownership. They were um, they were bought by Mallwright Communications in late 1972. There was a lot of staff changes, which is typical with new ownership. And they were looking for some uh, college kids, like interns. And I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I answered the phone on a Friday afternoon. They said, hey, we uh, we want you to work in the newsroom. And when can you start? I said, you know what? I could start in an hour if you want. And <laughs> that was a Friday afternoon. I was I was there on a Monday morning, and uh, I just want to let you know it was $2 an hour. They did pay me $2 an hour. I didn't have to work for free, but uh, it was a behind-the-scenes thing, and I worked on the AM side, and about a, about a uh, maybe a year later, 1974, when I was 20 years old, I was on the air doing news. And the rest is kind of history. If you Google Jeff and Flash, you'll find out, well, you'll see some crazy pictures of us and long hair and doing crazy things but it was it was fm radio at its finest i mean we we took a station which was uh, virtually nothing and turned it into a dynamo back in the 1980s i i spent 21 and a half years of my life i mean we're talking a whole generation there and it made me essentially who i am today i mean that's how i got the name flash i was the newsman 
Jeff was the main guy and we had characters around us. We, we did jokes, we did news, we had traffic. It was a full service morning show. We had governors on, uh, state reps, you name it. Um, we, we mixed it all up and had a whole lot of fun. And that station, if you talk to anybody in Cleveland or if you go around the country, is responsible for having the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame located in Cleveland, Ohio. And much of that had to do with the, the management, the staff, to uh, push push that forward. And it's just a great venue. And those of you listening, if you ever get a chance to come to Cleveland, you got to check out the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a, it's a great project, and it's always evolving. But that's kind of my history. Uh, I, I, that's how I got into radio. And then after that, when in, uh, in 94, when I left there, I did a couple of years in talk radio. And then the opportunity for America's workforce came up in uh, 1998. So I've been hosting this show. Actually, I've been hosting this show longer than I worked at WMMS. I'm, I'm in my uh, in, in August of this year. It'll be 24 years. It's hard to believe. Wow. Yeah, that that's I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. And, and you mentioned if you Google Jeff and Flash You'll get you'll get a lot of stuff come up, uh, and I did that, and I <laughs> <laughs> and so I've got this. Adam, play this clip for me because it's it's uh it it's Jeff when you uh, Flash when you were it was eighty three I think when this was recorded. So you would have been how old would you have been in eighty three? I would I would have been thirty years old then. Thirty years old. You got the nice beard. Yeah. You got your you got your like uh uh. Oh, it was a sweater vest on. I mean, you were you were really rocking the look, Adam. Let, let's go ahead and play that. Yeah, and I, I really, Flash. I hope this clip that you can hear it on your end as well because it's <laughs> it's a fun one. <laughs> go back into time here. Yeah. <laughs> here, coming up next on Video Air Checks number fifteen, it's Jeff and Flash and the Buzzard Morning Zoo. <sighs> Thank you very much, Denny. Okay, now what's this story? <laughs> oh, listen to this. They're calling it a case of a drug working a little too well. <laughs> Doctors in Canada found an experimental antidepressant, mind you, that was causing patients to experience orgasms every time they yawned. <laughs> Needless to say, this problem was slightly embarrassing for the two men and two women involved. One man said he was so exhausted he had to lie down for 15 minutes after each yawn. <laughs> he out. Yawn. What are you taking for? Oh, Sleeping on. pills. <laughs> oh, man. Do you remember that? Do you remember that particular story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, that's what that show was all about. It, it was crazy news. Uh, we would pick up little tidbits. Sometimes we would produce them up with sound effects. There used to be mm-hmm. a time on the show, we, we call it a stinger story at the end of the newscast. I would try to uh, find a song that would correspond with the story. And uh, it was a nice way to blend everything on the show. Uh, we often called, uh, not just the morning show, but that whole station was the soundtrack of the city. And, and you have to keep, and I said this many, many times on interviews throughout the years, you have to understand Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, I was born and raised in Cleveland. My dad was a steel worker. An uncle was a steel worker. I had one, uh, several that were uh, teamsters. I grew up in a union family and they all had good jobs. I mean, jobs where uh, my a, a father can support the entire family. Mm-hmm. So his wife 
could stay home and raise the kids. I mean, it was a different time in America. And, uh, but that was instilled in me. And when things started changing in Cleveland, we saw, and you, I'm sure you've talked about this on your show with uh, jobs disappearing, manufacturing disappearing, mm-hmm. jobs going to Mexico and Mexico jobs going to China, race to the bottom. I mean, it's been going on for decades now. Um, that's when, that's when Cleveland was, was pretty much referred to as the Rust Belt. So we saw that decline. And it's interesting to note that. I mean, we noted that on the show and all that. But with that decline, rock and roll, and I mentioned the rock hall, kind of became a passion. I mean, we would pack the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium with a, what we call the World Series of Rock with 80,000 people. We would, we would go to I mean, concerts were a big business. And that kind of took everybody's mind off the depression of the job mm. situation. And so it was, it was, it was kind of fun to be there. It was sad to watch what was happening, but we filled that void. And, right. uh, and that was, uh, I think that was a big part of the success of MMS because like I said, it was a soundtrack of city. We knew what was going on. We had, we had to come back and, and make people in some way appreciate the city and, we did that with rock and roll. We did that with rock and roll, and it, it really worked. You, you, I mean, you talk and, to anybody in Cleveland, they'll remember that. Well, and, and you, you, know, you did that with, with rock and roll, and you also did that in a way that in the production of it that kind of respected the legacy of the community that you were in. You, this, was a, this was a union set, right? Y'all were represented by yeah. SAG-AFTRA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I joined the union. You had to join the union in order to be on the air. When I first got in the station in 1973, I was behind the scenes. But the way the contract read, if you're going to be on the air, you had to be in AFTRA, which was the American Federation of TV Radio Artists. And, uh, and some people, and young people, said, oh, why do I have to do that? And I said, you know, look, I, look, listen, I grew up in a union family. The benefits are going to come down the road, mm-hmm. believe me. And uh, when, they, when I left the station, well, they had new owners. The first thing they did was bust the union. And we saw that um, throughout America. But about 10 years ago, the Screen Actors Guild, and AFTRA, because of that, there was a lot of, uh, obviously, finances kind of hit AFTRA. And you saw a lot of mergers, not just in corporations, but unions, too. And uh, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, and AFTRA kind of reached out to each other, and they joined forces. So now it's called SAG-AFTRA. And I always joke, I said, I'm in the same union as George Clooney. I just don't make as much money as him. (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that that's what was it uh what were some of the um you know you you said that 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 was it was a union set that was uh you know that you you had to be part of the union to be on the air um were there other radio stations at the time that were not union that you you could look to and you could say, oh wow, you know, we've definitely got this better. Or was everybody union at the time, and and so it was and so it was difficult to see the benefit until you until the union was defeated, basically. Well, there were just a few other stations at that time that were union, and I, I'm, honestly, I can't recall which ones. But when they were bought out more likely than not the new owners would go non-union and and that was just the case uh mms was an anomaly in so many ways with the fact that we had ownership that lasted 
they sold that station in 1992. I mean, for 20 years, for 20 years, Malright Communications kept the union intact, and uh, we build up a nice, obviously, equity in the union. And I'm, <laughs> frankly, I'm collecting. I'm collecting my union pension right now at 65. I came to term with that, and and uh, uh, I'm, I'm collecting that now, and, and it's going to just continue to go up because when I started the labor union show, and, and keep in mind that the labor union show is not part of any radio station. I, it's, it's recorded at a radio station, a non-union station, but it's what's called and probably similar to, uh, well, you're, you're on a podcast, but what has happened in radio, they have what they call brokered shows where you buy an hour by two hours and you see mm-hmm. a lot of financial planners, people like that, that usually grab that time and try to sell their wares. And that's kind of what America's workforce was and still is. We've just expanded with the podcasting, which is going to be two years come June. And that, that's why, and that's why you know about the show now, because right. podcasting is the biggest thing happening in America. And I, I want to share with you some numbers that I just got from uh, the, our production people that America's workforce, I mean, we're growing every month. And that just shows you there's a need. There's a need. We have good content. We present it well. Mm-hmm. It's presented in a radio station style, and which makes it a little bit different than other podcasts. But right now, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts in America, keep that in mind. But right now, we're in the top 10 to 15% when it comes to downloads of podcasts in America. And I'll tell you, in, in a two-year time, that's pretty darn good. And uh, I have to credit BMA Media for expanding it. I mean, we got Apple Podcasts, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Mm -hmm. Pandora, and Stitcher. And that's just a couple of them right now. There's six of them, and it's expanding as we go. And more and more people. I mean, we we contact people all around the country. California, I might might say, is one place where we're getting a lot of response. Uh, Union-friendly state, I get it. And uh, politically crazy state, (laughs) I get that too. Maybe that's why I don't know, but uh, but it's uh, it's it's fun to monitor what's going on to see uh, where we're picking up, and we're trying on a on a daily basis. I mean, we record the show Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we're trying to go to various parts of the country. We've hit Alabama mm-hmm. a couple of times. We hit Florida, and we're we're going into those right to work states to try to spend the you know to to get the union message out there. Texas is one. We hit, uh, yeah, we were with the Georgia State Federation. Charles Fleming was on a couple of weeks ago. He was really good. I mean, there's there's an interesting state right. uh, politically and, and in so many different ways, especially now with the Marjorie Taylor Greene's case yeah. before that the <laughs> administrative lodge. Yeah, I mean, yeah uh, well, that... I don't know where that. Right, where right. <clears throat> Yeah, well, y'all y'all have a very a very similar. Um, I mean, it, it's basically exactly the same kind of format uh, as we have because we do we do that on a couple of on a few different stations. We um, we buy an hour and a half on WVNN in Huntsville. We buy an hour on WZZA in Muscle Shoals, and then WHIV in New Orleans gives us an hour for free. Um, and and then we also upload it as a podcast um, and and do it on YouTube as well. So a very similar. Similar format there, and um, and and actually, we have some of this. Uh, 
one of the same sponsors. AFGE sponsors both of our shows, and I liked your reading of their copy so much that I had them ask you if it was okay if we just played your ad. <laughs> so, so we've actually got your ad running on on our show, and and so our sponsors help help us stay on the air as well as listener donations. Um, and you've been in Alabama a few times, or you've you've talked to people from Alabama a few times, and um, you yeah. talked to Bart Maddox from the Iron Workers last week. A couple months ago, you talked to Bill Blackman from the Iron Workers, um, or from the Electrical Workers in Birmingham, their sponsor of the show. And uh, we just got in the chat, Jeb Miles, who's with the Iron Workers Local 477 in Muscle Shoals, said he is slated to be on May the 4th. So that's really cool, and you actually, the electrical workers have in Birmingham, they have a really cool thing that they just they just finished, actually, uh, which is the city council in Birmingham passed a responsible bidder ordinance um, at the urging of the electrical workers mainly, but some of the other trade unions as well, and your interview with the IBEW is the only news that I can find about the responsible bidder ordinance passing. I mean, I've looked, I've had him on my show to talk about that the same exact thing. And I was in preparation for the interview that we did with him. I was trying to look for some information about it. None of the local news stations were talking about this. Uh, there was there was nothing on it except Ed Flash Ferentz in Ohio talking about what's going on in Birmingham, Alabama. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, that just shows you the void out there. There is a ton of stuff that the people are not acquainted with. And, and, you know, much of that, if not all of that, is because of deregulation. I mean, how many shows, how many shows were carrying like the late Rush Limbaugh? Mm-hmm. Or you've got the, uh, the networks. I mean, it's just, you've got the religious aspect, but it's hardline conservative and and there's very few areas that talk about working class issues. And when, right. and I could speak to this here, when I, I talk to people and the first thing out of their mouth is, God, I love your show. I, I, I didn't know that. I'm not hearing that anywhere else. And mm-hmm. it's sad. It's good that we're doing that and we're getting a response, but it's sad that not more people are doing that because there is a craving for that. Um, and, and there's so many things in America. If you don't mind, I'll share with you something. We have the uh, Tim Coleman is a great guest. You should get him on your show. And he comes from the Sprinkler Fitters Union, mm-hmm. which is a, affiliated with the United Association. And uh, he's on a mission. And actually, uh, this is a great idea because I, I told you about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and NMS. And it, back in the 80s, we were the activists for that to happen. That was an uphill battle. It took almost 10 years for that to happen. And when we were announced, when Cleveland was announced in 1986, it still took five years for it to happen. So radio, in its heyday, always was a, a medium that moved the needle. And with the dilution of, uh, you know, you've got so many stations, you got 500, 600 cable stations, you don't have three VHF stations. There's a lot of choices out there, and a lot of it mm-hmm. is occupied by outlets that really don't help workers. Let's be honest. Right. I mean, that's the situation. Mm-hmm. But uh, radio can be used in a way to make changes. And I bring up the sprinkler fitters 
because um, <laughs> this is unbelievable. New York, okay, can we agree that New York has pretty good union density? Union, I mean, especially compared to states in the South, we can agree right. on that, right? Oh, okay. oh yeah. Did you did you know that New York is one of five states where sprinkler fitters don't have to have a license? Wow. <laughs> Go figure. Mm. Go figure that. And right. you're talking when 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 you have a sprinkler fitter and look up the sprinkler fitters. Go to the UA. There's a apprenticeship program that is unbelievable. Sprinkler fitters. I mean, these are people that are saving lives. When you think about it. The sprinkling systems are in schools, in hospitals. And if they're not done, if they're not installed correctly, we're talking about lives being lost. And there's documentation on that. There, I mean, the UA has been following this for a long time. And Tim, he's been on the show a couple times. In fact, I had uh, one of the sprinkler fitters just this week from Chicago, Illinois. Illinois is another one that doesn't have mm-hmm. laws like that. Again, union-friendly state. Why? So anyway, what Tim's doing, he's, he's taken, he took the show and uh, he took the links. He edited them down a little bit so they're not easier to send by email. He sent it to every legislator in New York, state, Senate, I mean, all levels of government. He sent it to the government's, the governor's office. I mean, he's just, he loved what we did. And he set it up, and it was just and we had we had individual, not just Tim, but we had other people on the show talking about the fact that they lack mm-hmm. licensing. But this is the, I mean, this is what needs to be done. And I come from that old school where you can make a difference, and we always say mm-hmm. unions make a difference, and you guys know that. I mean, look at the difference in in salaries, look at the difference in pay, pensions. Come on, I mean, did you know like half of America does not have a pension? Oh I mean, yeah, come on, and it's. <laughs> let's let's start let's start bringing those topics back instead of right. all this political craziness that's going on and talk about issues bread and butter issues that are affecting people right right so and anyway, even the you know i'm on a i'm on a soapbox here can you tell oh no bit? no i mean you, it's 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 a good one to be on because i mean even even some of the the places like that's supposed to be that that you know if you you're completely right about the proliferation of right-wing media and the subsidization that like oligarchs and billionaires give it, you know, because the the extent to which it actually adds value, you know, in, in kind of a capitalist sense is is probably pretty minimal, but but you know, they they're getting the message out and people on, yeah. you know, you, it, it seems like unions are, and and people on the left seem less willing and able of course because there are less billionaires you know but but the yeah. uh, the extent to which we have people that can give resources it's difficult to to do things that act that do actually talk about working people's issues and even some of the places that are supposed to be if you listen to you know the people on right-wing radio that are supposed to be also like the left or what you know msnbc cnn nbc all these people you know uh we have one we have one in Alabama, the Alabama Political Reporter. That's ostensibly, if you listen to Right Wing Radio, you're going to think the Alabama Political Reporter is a socialist, communist thing, right? And and yeah. so let me just read you a, a piece that they that is in their news section. That it was a report they did an article about the Associated Builders and Contractors um, endorsing 
this person for Senate. Okay, so this is just supposed to be a straight news article saying these people endorse this person. Listen to some of the some of the stuff that they put in here. The merit shop philosophy is a belief that the free enterprise system, uninhibited by government overregulation or interference, provides the best opportunity for qualified, hardworking individuals to excel in their craft. It is a competitive way of doing business that encourages fair play, economic growth, and job creation. It is a principle which, while focusing on safety and workforce development, re- rewards personal and initiative, skill, and drive to succeed. At the end of the day, the merit shop way of thinking creates opportunity rather than focusing on entitlement, something the country could learn from. This is in their news section, Flash. Yeah, yeah. This is supposed to be, like, this is is supposed to be the Democrat operative people doing the news in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. No, it's way out of line, way out of line. You know, we live, you have to understand, we live in a PR world today. You ever see the, you ever see the movie Cheney that came out yes. a couple of years ago about yes. the former vice president? There's a good, uh, I think Frank Luntz was the guy. He was a speech writer and he also crafted their talking points. And you heard talking points, talking points, talking points. And I'll tell you, especially right wing, they, they do a darn good job at that. They really do. In that movie. They'll, they'll take something and they'll make it palatable to workers. And one of them was uh, the death tax. They refer, you know, when, yeah. when, uh, when, <laughs> yeah, when somebody dies and there's an estate and there's a tax on that estate, so they called it a death tax. That's just got everybody riled up, riled up. And it's the use of clever words that get people's attention, even though it's not for their best interests. And it, yep. and it hurts the economy in various ways. And it, it happens all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. And tax cuts. You know, how many times have you heard, I mean, they cut tax, cut taxes, cut tax. I mean, I get that, but it'd be nice if they cut taxes for the right people. Um, right. But, uh, but that's not, that's not done. It's always, always the people at the top that, um, Did you, that get hit. Speaking of, of, of cutting taxes, Alabama still taxes groceries. We still tax groceries. Really? We're one of only like nine states that do that still tax groceries. And what did and and there there are some people that are trying to repeal the grocery tax in Alabama. But do you know what they did instead in this last what? session? They passed another business tax cut <laughs> for bosses. Yeah. We've got people yeah, paying ten percent on groceries, and we passed another tax cut for bosses. Right, right. Well, remember when they floated the flat tax? They wanted to dump income tax altogether. Oh, yeah. Like a 17% flat tax. And we all know. I mean, the flat tax and groceries, we know who's affected by that. It's mm-hmm. it's so sad. It's so sad. But again, you know, we're talking about these things because we, we don't have good people in office. We certainly don't have a majority of them to make any difference. Um, people, uh, we got a tax on voting rights. And... And it's, it's, there's so many states that are technically one party states. Ohio, mm-hmm. I can speak to Ohio. I lived, I lived in Cleveland all my life. Ohio was a swing state. It no longer is a swing state. It's, it's a red state. And it was, uh, it, it, a lot of this came, I want to say back in 2010. This was Obama gets elected in 08. 
And then you know what happened in 2010. Right. There was a there was a big and the same thing that's happening right now because Biden got elected. And we see these right wing governors, Kasich in Ohio. We saw Scott Walker in Michigan, Snyder in uh, Wisconsin, Snyder in Michigan. Uh, Scott, Rick Scott was the governor in Florida. Now, Florida was already right to work. But Wisconsin, Michigan went mm-hmm. right to work. I mean, these were union states, Wisconsin. Come on. And right. and and again, OK, let's use that term right to work. Doesn't that sound pretty? <laughs> hey, yeah. I should have the right to work. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean a federal right job there? guarantee. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, again, we get back to those talking points and how they sell. They're actually selling words and ideas that hurt workers. That's what that's what's going on. And that's mm-hmm. part of the PR thing that has happened. And that did not exist decades ago. And it, and it right. works just like political advertising works, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should see what's going on in the Senate race here in Ohio. We've got like four or five Republicans going after Rob Portman's seat, and they're just chewing each other alive. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun to watch at the same time, though. <laughs> oh yeah, we've got we've got the same thing here. Uh, people tripping over themselves about who loves Daddy Trump the most. I mean, it's really you know for for a party that ostensibly values like manliness and and you know rugged individualism, they are just. So incredible! Like I couldn't imagine anybody, you know. Like I, I could, I could not imagine tripping over myself to fawn over another person in the same way that these people are doing to Donald Trump. Like even if I liked them, like yeah. I, you know, I, I'm a you know, I, I'm like I was a supporter of Bernie Sanders in 2016, and but I'm not going to you know, trip over myself to be like, uh, I'm the most Bernie can't like, I mean, it's just so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so all of this stuff that you're talking about, I mean, this, this is why you, you decided to, to, to start to do America's workforce starting in, in the nineties. Right. I mean, so, so that you yeah. could kind of platform these, these issues so that, that people could understand What's at stake in elections, and so that people could understand how to make their self, make their lives better in between elections too. Because you know, it, yeah, when, yeah. when you're when you're talking about unions, when you're talking about organizing your workplace, like you don't you don't have to have anybody's permission. You don't have to wait for an election. You don't have to wait for the boss's permission or a politician's permission. You can just go out and do the thing and make your life better. And that's like uh, that's cool as hell. I think, um, and and so you know it. You can talk some more about, but is that basically why you wanted to do the switch from, you know, kind of the general morning show to a straight war talking about unions like every day? Well, well, it it, it evolved. Uh, let me be honest. There was an opportunity. We uh, in uh, '97. The uh, talk radio thing, we worked on a, a, a 50,000 watt station and they had a format change. And in fact, I worked with my partner that I worked with at MMS, Jeff Kinsbach, and they decided to go in a different direction. So I, um, I was looking, I was doing some voice work, part time work here. And, um, somebody that I worked with at one of the stations at a uh, sister station of, uh, it was 3WE. This is now WTAM. You could probably even get it down there. It's a 50,000 watt powerhouse at night. But again, it's, it's a formerly a clear channel station. Now I hard very uh, far to the right, but um, 
there was this opportunity that came upon me and then said, Hey, uh, can you fill in for me? And, uh, I did it. I liked it. And then that person went on to another station and I had the opportunity to do it, you know, five days a week. We, we did it live back then. It was at 7 a.m., 7 to 8 a.m. And then I got a, uh, in 2000, I got a day job and there were some format changes at the radio station. So we decided to record it in the morning and then it airs from four to five p.m. on uh, 1490 WERE. It also streams live at newstalkcleveland.com. So you can get it down there on a daily basis. But if you don't mind, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, you, you, 1993, there's pivotal dates. And as you well know, there are certain dates that I think we need to call attention to. And oddly enough, the year that I was born, 1953, was the highest year for union density in America. Mm-hmm. It was like almost 35%. Think about that. One out of three, more than one out of three workers in America belong to a union. That was 1953. And you had, I mean, you had FD. And how did that happen? Well, let's take a look. FDR, union friendly. Truman was carried out legacy. Eisenhower, even though it was a Republican, started the federal highway system with a lot of construction workers to work. I mean, there was a lot of things that were very union friendly. And when that density happened, there was a certain amount of time where the corporations say, oh, okay, slow down here. We, we, we got to stop this. And we saw the erosion step by step, uh, mostly in manufacturing. And that started in the 70s. And then it accelerated, boy, the the game changer was 81 when Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. Pivotal year. Because that gave a green light to corporate America that, hey, you know what? If you want to get rid of your union, you can do it because I did. And it happened. It happened. Now, let's fast forward to 93. What happened in 93? Clinton signed NAFTA. Mm Yeah. And, and you, you heard all the stories, people saying, hey, this is not a good idea. And, and sure enough, we saw jobs disappear. So what do we do? We do it again, 2001, when we normalize relations with China. And since then, I just talked about this on the show yesterday, China alone, the Economic Policy Institute did some numbers on this, and they just went from 2001 to 2017. 3.8 million jobs went to China. That's mm-hmm. how many jobs went to China. And why did that happen? Well, they, you know what? It happened because they had a lot of help from the Democrats. The Democrats, right. Clinton signed off on it. The Democrats, and here's part, of, here's part of the reason for that. Union density went down. By the time I, I talked about 1953, 35%. And I don't know, I don't have the numbers in in, uh, in the 90s or 2000, but it was probably, I would say, uh, between 18 and 22%. And today in the private sector, it's like 6 and 7%. The only mm-hmm. density that's strong today is in the public sector, and that's why they're attacking public sector unions. That's about right. 30% where it was uh, back in 1953 for everybody. But the Democratic Party got a lot of help from unions. Well, guess what? They can't get that anymore because unions don't have the strength. They don't have the financial resource. So where do they go? Corporations, corporate America. That's why. That's why you saw them sign off. That's why a lot of Democrats, you know, people realize, okay, if you're not going to be on my side, 
I'm going to find somebody who is. And if if a if an opposite party person speaking about a Republican is going to talk the talk and walk the walk, and that's how Trump got elected. When you think about mm-hmm. it, what did he talk about? I'm going to bring all the jobs back. Well, guess what? They bought it hook, line, and sinker. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell what's happened here in America. If you go back almost 50, 60 years, right? And it, it's been so you know the 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 part that the Democratic Party played is, is is really you know is really shameful to the legacy of of FDR and um, and you know the people that that did support uh, unions in the Democratic Party uh, and and even when they were when unions were able to help them more than they can now uh, you know they still <laughs> I mean Clinton you know we're talking about unions were a lot stronger back then uh, Jimmy Carter you know Jimmy Carter was the one that put Put in place uh, the plan to uh, to implement the changes or, or, or to to fire the air traffic controllers, and then and then Reagan just went through with it. You know, I mean, so like the it, it's just really amazing how uh, you know. I mean, I, that's what happens when you have a party that's supposed to represent workers and bosses. I guess is that you know, yeah, uh, you yeah. know the Bible says you can't serve more than one master. You'll go to love one and hate the other, and well. You know, yeah. the, the Democrats, by and large, have uh, have uh, grown to love the bosses, unfortunately. <laughs> Boy, you're not kidding. Hey, here's a little tidbit. I, I didn't realize this. I did some research for uh, President's Day. And, you know, you, everybody talks about FDR, about unions. And sure enough, I mean, the, the National Labor Relations Board was created under that administration. Mm-hmm. Social Security, all good things for workers happened. But he didn't like public sector unions. I don't know if you know no, that. No, he didn't. I, I didn't realize that. He yeah. didn't. He didn't like them. He didn't think they should exist. Private, yes, but he didn't like public sector unions. So it's it's kind of interesting. And, and you you fast forward to today, Biden, he'll he'll go for it all. He's very mm-hmm. pro union. I, I just wish that there would be. And there's so many things that he's got to fight now, plus crazy war. Right. That uh, things like the Pro Act and things that would help people. Uh, and again, where are we? I mean, who's who's stopping progress right now? Democrats. Democrat. Guy by by the name of Joe Manchin. We got the two people over in uh, Arizona. It's Democrats. Those are the ones Mm -hmm. that are stopping everything, which is so frustrating. It. It, it is so frustrating, and and the basically the bright spot in the Biden administration has been the NLRB. We spoke to, you know, you mentioned public sector unions. We spoke to an attorney at the NLRB in Birmingham a few weeks ago, Joseph Webb. He's the uh, he's the president of the NLRB Union Local Ten here in the Southeast, and he talked about we we got him on after that report from Dave Jamison at the Huffington Post about the NLRB's funding issues, and you know he talked to us. About about one of his other fellow union members at the NLRB who explained that Republicans are much more passionate about destroying the NLRB than the NLRB is, or than the the Democrats are about saving it. And so we've seen uh, since 2014, Obama, Trump, and one budget from Biden flat funding the NLRB which is which yeah. which amounts to a 25% cut in their funding as we're seeing more union elections more organizing more people more ULPs being committed and and we're and and so these the people that are tasked 
with enforcing all of labor law <laughs> are being left to hang right. out on the left to dry on the vine and, and by Democrats yeah. and by Republicans. It's just it's really it, it's you, really you can you can take that to other government agencies. And one that stands out is OSHA. And I call attention mm-hmm. to OSHA now because, you know, this week coming up next Thursday is Workers Memorial Day. And uh, that that was created. And believe it or not, that was created by in the, in the Nixon administration. And, and you know, if Nixon were alive today, he would be, and probably Reagan too. They'd probably be kicked out of the Republican Party. They're too liberal. I mean, mm-hmm. at, at one point, Nixon wanted to do a universal health plan, and there was a fight. That, I know. I guess, uh, Ted, he Ted, wanted to implement yeah, Ted, universal Ted. basic income, actually. Really? Okay. And yes, yeah, yeah. don't forget the EPA. <laughs> the idea is, they would chase them. They would burn the house down if that happened. Uh huh. I mean, it's it's amazing. But OSHA, I want OSHA is another one. I mean, how many how many inspections are being take, are taking place in workplaces today? The inspection usually doesn't happen until there's some tragedy. It's just like mm-hmm. the bridges that collapse. They'll say, "Well, this bridge is not good," and then it collapses. Oh, we should have known about it. Well, you did. You just didn't do anything about it. Right. I mean, it's ridiculous what's out there, but we don't have enough inspectors. We don't have enough people at the at the labor board, and it's just been a slow erosion over the years. And it, it's sad because you're talking about people's lives. Yes. I mean, the statistics, the statistics on at least five thousand fifty two hundred people every year go to work and don't come home at the end of the day. They get killed on the job, mm-hmm. and then. Literally tens of thousands die because of exposure to hazardous chemicals, asbestos for one, silica dust. And these mm-hmm. take a long time, maybe 20, 30, 40 years, and then they end up as court cases, and then you know how that turns out. I mean, oh, yeah. by the time you see any kind of adjudication, the person's dead. I mean, that, that's what's going on. There's, you know, we have gotten better. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's it's it, it, it definitely made improvements, but there's still we have a long way to go. We really do. I remember doing a segment. I think while Trump was still in office about OSHA, and that they had, I can't remember the numbers, but it was it was something absolutely insane. Like only one in every like five thousand reports were investigate were even investigated by OSHA. I can't yeah. I mean yeah. take it with a grain of salt because but it was an insane number under the Trump administration. Yeah. And uh it, it's just a- absolutely uh, it's crazy. Flash, I am really enjoying the conversation, but I want to be respectful of your time. I said 30 to 45 minutes, and we're already going a little over. So, But I, I really appreciate you, you taking the time to talk to us. We'll have to, we'll have to get you on the show again, um, the, uh, and, and we'll, we'll leave you off with this. Do you have any advice for, uh, for us and for folks across the country who are doing you know, labor podcasts, uh, labor-friendly radio shows, things like this, um, as somebody who's been doing it for over 20 years? Well, yeah, two things. Content is king. If you have good content, eventually they're going to find you. Now, there's a lot out there, and it's sometimes hard to find. The other word of advice, social media. And I bring that up. You know what's going on at Amazon. You know what's going on at hmm. Starbucks. The bottom line, especially, and these are, these are people that are organizing without the help of big unions. 
Um, it, it's amazing to see the grassroots effort, the rank and file effort that's going on. You know how they're doing it? Social media. They have found ways. The guys, this is a great story, and I'll be brief. I don't know if you followed the, the Amazon Staten Island at the warehouse. They went down the halls there uh, at, at the at the warehouse, and they, they found the union busters. They saw the mm-hmm. which were getting paid $3,000 a day. They got their phones out. They captured the video. They tweeted it out. Don't talk to this person. It's a union buster. And there was one where these guys are clever, too. They had a good-looking gal that was a union buster. Nobody knew that (laughs) until she was exposed. In fact, they were hitting on her. (laughs) Hey, don't talk to her. She's a union buster. I remember you saying that on your show. Everybody ran away and said, I ain't going (laughs) to talk to you. (laughs) But social media is the wave of the future. And we use it at BMA to get the, we even sent out social media uh, on Friday. uh, Yeah, Friday, yesterday, to promote your show today. So social media is, and it's, if you know how to use it, it can be so effective. It's being used in organizing as we speak. So I think that's my best advice. Keep the content strong, promoting uh, one thing at, at WMMS, what we did, we had great content, and my program director will swear up and down on this, 50% product, 50% promotion. If you don't have that promotion to go with that good product, mm. it ain't going to happen. Simple, mm-hmm. simple as that. I want to leave you with that advice. Flash, thanks so much again. I really enjoyed the conversation. We'll have to get you back on the show. Thank you. Thanks uh, for, for uh, in, uh, inviting me, and let's do it again. All right. All right, folks. Uh, go listen to America's Workforce uh, if you're not already for some reason. It's really great. Uh, they've, got a new inter- they've got new interviews out every day. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And I appreciate you, Jacob, for turning me on to it. I mean, I, I would have never known, and knowing that folks like Jeb – right here in our community are being interviewed uh by america's workforce radio it's really cool it's mm-hmm. it's great stuff and it, so it's something that of course we want to learn from on this program and uh i hope that they pick up some alabama listeners yeah uh, because uh, as flash mentioned they are interviewing union organizers and officials and rank and file workers from across the country including mm-hmm. the southeast i know uh you shared something with me the other day from uh, AFT Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's great to see that. And I think you know, we've talked about this on the show a little bit, the growth of alternative, you know, pro-labor media. And, you know, I'm glad that we're playing our little part in that. Uh, I'm happy to see what Flash is doing with uh, AWF. And and really, I, I think it's it's uh, something that's promising. I know there were some kind of depressing aspects to, to our conversation there talking about the deindustrialization and you know the neoliberal turn in this country the decline of unions but the positive thing we can talk about is how just in these last couple years we have seen an explosion in uh, pro-labor media and an explosion in actual new organizing happening in places like amazon and starbucks so i think those things uh, bode well for us as a movement and the more we can all support each other, promote each other, and collaborate, the better and stronger we'll all be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, seriously, I, I, ha- I found 
America's workforce like six months ago. From the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which we are a part of, I was like, I had I had run out of content to listen to. I was I was hungry for some new content, and I went to the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can find them at like laborradionet.com or something. I don't know. Google Labor Radio Podcast Network, and there's like a hundred different shows um, that are all labor radio stuff. So, um, so that's where I found them, and I've listened to basically every single <laughs> every single episode since then. It's such a great show, such a great show. Um, uh, so we got a um, somebody on the. Uh, the Facebook, who said, no wonder that Phil Williams hasn't contacted us. Uh, this is a hilarious show. So I told him that he could call after Flash got off, and so now Flash is off. So if you're still watching us on Facebook, uh, mister, then um, feel free to call now. While yeah, we wait, sure. though, let's talk about the ABC. Um... The Associated Builders and Contractors. I, I really hate that we didn't that I wasn't able to make time for this on, on WVNN. We've just got so much. There's so much to talk about. So much to talk about, but this is a really important this is really good stuff here. Um, and uh, uh, so Katie Britt is running for US Senate here in Alabama. Um, right now it's a three way race between her, Mo Brooks, and Mike Durant. Katie Britt is another one of those folks who has also not responded to a request for uh, to a to an interview request. Um, which, like, I don't. I mean, I don't know if these people have actually watched interviews that I've done with people that I disagree with. But I think I'm. I think I am a very nice guy, even if I disagree with you. I think I'm very. I'm. I'm very nice to talk to. Um, even if we disagree, all I want to know—I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you. But these, but they're, but they're scared. That's what I think. Uh, so, what is it that makes her viable? She was chief of staff for Richard Shelby and was president of the Alabama Council of Bosses. Those connections have earned her the endorsement of several other councils of bosses, um, as well as the big council of bosses. But she's earned. Uh, several endorsements from smaller councils of bosses like the Council of Retail Bosses, the Council of Restaurant Bosses, the Council of Car Dealer Bosses. I mean, I'm endorsed by a used car salesman. Great. Council of Forest Bosses, Council of Farm Bosses, Council of Factory Bosses, and the Council of Construction Bosses. Uh, that list alone should scare the hell out of you if you <laughs> are not a boss. But let's say it doesn't. Let's say... It doesn't. Um, let's zero in then on the Council of Construction Bosses, the Associated Builders and Contractors. We can say that uh, their views are at least somewhat reflective of Brit, seeing as how she told the right-wing propaganda outlet Yellowhammer News, I am proud to have the endorsement of the Associated Builders and Contractors Alabama chapter. Um, okay, so I think we, we can establish that their views are relevant to Katie Britt, um, and uh, I, I mentioned this with 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 um, with Flash, but I, I, I just want to take this chance to really quickly point out the drivel 
the drivel that the Alabama political reporter said in their article about the endorsement. They said the merit shop philosophy is a belief that the free enterprise system, uninhibited by government overregulation or interference, provides the best opportunity for qualified, hardworking individuals to excel in their craft. It is a competitive way of doing business that encourages fair play, economic growth, and job creation. It is a principle which, while focusing on safety and workforce development, rewards personal initiative, skill, and drive to succeed. At the end of the day, the merit shop way of thinking creates opportunity rather than fostering entitlement. Something that the country could learn from. I mean, that's just... This is from the Alabama Political Reporter. I mean, this is supposed to be ostensibly like the Democrat... Thing in Alabama, the Democrat version they, of the, they, news. the uh, Alabama liberal media, liberal media, amazing, astonishing. Um, I guess they just reprinted the the press release more or less. Uh, no, they did. They that's like that wasn't in the press release. Oh my god, that wasn't wow. a quote. There was a quote from the press release, but that was the prelude to the quote in the press release. I suspect I, I could probably guess who the author of the article is, but I'm just going to leave that alone. But I have I have no idea, honestly. I have no idea who the author is. It's said by staff. It's said by staff. So I don't know who is responsible for the staff articles, but um, if you're out there listening and you work for the Alabama Political Reporter, uh, blink twice if you're being held hostage. I mean, <laughs> my, I mean my God. Um the Associated Builders and Contractors, though, uh, they were founded in 1950 because the bosses thought that the workers were getting paid too much. And that's that's basically the whole thing. So let's talk about the next... Uh, no, <laughs> but uh, that's, that is. That's basically the whole thing, though. Their mission as an organization is to drive down wages for workers, to train them less, and to make them less safe, safe on the job. That's the whole thing. The primary way that they lower wages is through fighting unionization. They promote non-union construction, things like this. Uh, And we know here on this program that unionization and collective bargaining raises wages for working people. Another way that they attack wages of construction workers is through their training, if you could call it that, where the building trades unions have multi-year training programs aimed at creating a genuine uh, professional craftsman with all the skills necessary to perform in their trade, spending more than any university system in the country approximately a billion dollars a year spent by the trade unions at no cost to the apprentice, at no cost to the government. Where uh, Where the building trade unions do that and pump out Thousands of trained professional craftsmen every year. The non-union ABC contractors, their training is job-specific. Creating workers that can only do one job without any other marketable skills. They spend next to nothing. They get government subsidies because they train people in partnerships, oftentimes with local colleges. And they they charge their apprentices for the honor of being trained by them. 
mean, it's just it's it's a scam, like we've said on the program before. But let's say that you're not convinced by this. After all, the ABC says on their About Us page that we believe the Merit Shop movement is a movement for the betterment of the individual, the construction industry, and the nation. So here, the ABC is saying, look, guys, this is not training workers well. This is how we better the individual. This is the way to do it, uh, giving, <laughs> providing them with less knowledge. Um, and if you've been poisoned, if you've been poisoned day in and day out by nonsense on TV and the radio, maybe you take the bosses at their word that they actually care about you. Uh, and that, left alone, they will actually treat you better than if you grew a backbone and stood together with your sisters and brothers on the job and demanded better. Maybe you believe that, because that's, uh, that's, what, uh, that's what the bosses want you to think. But there's data on this. Like we can, just, we can simply look at the result. So let's do that. An Illinois EPI study titled Union Apprenticeships, the Bachelor's Degree of the Construction Industry. We talked about this on the show. Um, we talked about this on the show a, uh, a couple of months ago. But let's revisit some of that information. The labor market outcomes of union construction workers are competitive with workers with college degrees, while non-union construction workers are only on par with workers with high school diplomas. Meaning that they may as well not have gotten any training at all. That's, that's what you get from a non-union apprenticeship. Is nothing. Literally, literally freaking nothing is what you get. Where union apprenticeship programs get you the equivalent of a bachelor's degree. Union construction workers earn $58,000 per year on average, which is 46% more than non-union construction workers. $39,700 a year. 89% of union construction workers have health care, compared with just 55% of non-union construction workers. A 34% difference. Among all workers with associate degrees and bachelor's degrees, average incomes range between $48,000 to $68,000. And private health insurance coverage ranges from 84 to 90%. So we can see there that a union apprenticeship, union construction jobs are on par with bachelor's degrees. Uh, let's go to another study by the UC Berkeley Labor Center. We also talked about this a while back. They showed that they evaluated the effect of non-union construction jobs on the welfare system. They found that nationwide, 39% of families of construction workers are enrolled in one or more safety net program at a cost of almost $28 billion per year, and three times as many construction workers as all workers lack health insurance. 38, 31% of construction workers lack health insurance compared to 10% of all workers. Nationwide, construction workers' families are overall 28% more likely than all working families to participate, participate in one or more means-tested safety net program. These families are 36% more likely to be enrolled in children's Medicaid and 38% more likely to be enrolled in the earned income tax credit. There is a record here. We're not simply out in the wilderness trying to try just 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 pondering our abstract ideas. 
That's not what's happening. We're, we're not out on a limb. There are data out there. These different things have been tried. Different modes of production, different modes of organization have been tried, and we can look at the results. We can look at the results, and that's what the results of non-union construction bosses are. They pay workers less. They less often give workers health care. And they pay them so much less that we end up subsidizing them. Other workers end up subsidizing these bosses' low wages through our welfare programs that we give these poor workers. And, Jacob, you know, the dark irony here is that organizations such as ABC then turn around and demonize these very same welfare programs and use yep. that as their political rallying cry uh, and, of course, go on to endorse candidates such as Katie Britt and others who do the same, who run against these sort of welfare and social service programs, as meager as they are, and use that uh, as a political cudgel. You know, so, so they are creating... Mm-hmm. They're creating a demand for these social services, which they then use as reasons to give them more power to elect them into the office uh, so they can then attack these same social services. It's just it's twisted. Uh, And, you know, the other the other example I have, because I was just really thinking about this this morning for for some whatever reason, it was on my mind. And to me, it, it really is comparable to how. The very same people who demonize abortion so much Mm. and and focus on getting poor, often less literate folks convinced that abortion is is this evil and and they should never entertain the idea of an abortion. Uh, So they often you'll find teenage pregnancies are covered by Medicaid. We've mentioned on this on this program how about half of all births in Alabama are covered by Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So you have these right wing forces who convince people, no, you can never have an abortion that's evil. Uh, so the people who might could benefit from that option don't even consider that option. Instead, they give birth at 16, 17 uh, when they can't afford it. Or maybe they have multiple children that they can't afford, yet they have more children uh, because abortion is not an option for them because they've been right. told it can't be an option. Right. They then rely on these very same social services that uh, are the subject of their political campaigns that are used to divide and conquer the working class because we know that is one of the most prevalent ways we are divided and conquered mm-hmm. is by demonizing people who rely on food stamps or demonizing people who are on an, on unemployment when they create these very conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that yeah that exactly right. So the Associated Builders and Contractors long-time project but they've been hitting it really hard <clears throat> recently to bring down workers' wages is attacking project labor agreements. What are project labor agreements? We talked to Eddie Mitchell on the show about this. He is um, he is a business agent for the Iron Workers Local 477 here. But just to recap, there are agreements in which the customer, oftentimes the, cus- the government, but not always, there are agreements in which the customer makes prior agreement to pay union wages and benefits follow the higher standard for safety that unions set for the duration of the contract. 
non-union contractors are allowed to bid on project labor agreements. All they've got to do is follow the rules. That's all they got. Like they don't have to become union. They don't. Ha- their employees don't have to become union on all their other projects. All they've got to do for the duration of this contract is pay union wages and follow the union safety rules, which create which give people more money obviously and create more safe working conditions because on union work sites i i i can't believe that i didn't think to bring this into the, to to look up the numbers on this but union work sites are significantly safer than non-union work sites i believe that the the number is something like there are 30% fewer deaths on union construction sites than non-union construction sites I can't say that's the official number, but it's a number something like that. Um, and it, and it, it, it's funny that I, I forgot to uh, – or that I didn't think to bring that in because I, I still prepped a whole lot. I was thinking yesterday about <laughs> looking at the 25,000 words that I had in my Word doc and thinking how much easier – being a radio show host would be if I just didn't if I was just like a right wing blowhard and didn't care at all about being correct about anything. Wow, it's um, like uh, doing research is yeah. actually a little harder than just pulling it out of your ass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the number is something like that. But, well, and, I can tell you uh, the construction unions at, at least, which is what we're talking about, nineteen uh, percent less likely to be cited for health and safety violations, hmm. and on average had thirty four percent fewer violations per inspection. There we go. Uh, and that's a pretty recent report there with uh, Safety and Health magazine. Yep. And so I said many times the customer of project labor agreements are um, is the government, but that's not always the case. Um, so the Toyota Mazda facility, actually, just down the road, is a project with a project labor agreement, and Toyota, which is a non-union company, entered the PLA over the objections of the governor, actually. Governor Kay Ivey did not want them to enter a project labor agreement because because she doesn't she doesn't care about Alabama workers, I don't know. But why did Toyota, which is a non-union company, why did they enter a project labor agreement? Because higher wages, safer working conditions, ensure a better product. Now, they don't want their actual, you know, folks on the line building those Toyota vehicles to join a union, but they are smart enough to know that that union labor uh, built them a better facility. Yep. President Biden recently signed an executive order stating that all federal construction projects over $35 million would have PLAs, and the anti-worker associated builders and contractors did not like that. Let's see what they had to say on Fox Business. Yeah. Uh, so President sure. uh, Biden signed an executive order that uh, requires something called project labor agreements on federal construction contracts greater than $35 million. And project labor agreements result in increased costs and discourage competition for more than 87% of the construction industry. So the result of this executive order is it's going to steer contracts to unionize contractors and union labor at the expense of taxpayers. And we know that project labor agreements increase the cost of construction between 12% and 20%. So that means we'll get fewer roads, schools, bridges, and utilities that were funded through the infrastructure bill earlier this year. So this is a real lose-lose policy for taxpayers and the construction industry. Our 
Trump members are furious with the administration over this, and they hope that um, they'll reconsider the uh, the policy, and, uh, and 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 the policy will be replaced with something that will support fair and open competition that will encourage all Americans and all construction companies to compete for this uh, taxpayer-funded construction work. So, Ben, I mean, give me a sense of how many non-union contractors uh, are being essentially, you know, put out of work by these rules. I mean, is it a large percentage? Well, it's hard to know exactly because the final rule hasn't come out yet on this, but we know that our members perform 50% of large-scale federal construction contracts in the last decade. So they are going to be severely impacted by this, uh, depending on the size and scope of of the contract. And that's bad news. When you have your best firms uh, building roads, schools, and bridges, and they're not allowed to compete on that, obviously that's going to increase the cost of construction. This is another inflationary policy by the Biden administration. Does the rule essentially create a closed shop? Are there no non-union companies allowed to, to, to bid? Non-union companies are technically allowed to bid oh. on project labor agreement uh, ah. jobs. However, the terms and conditions of project labor agreements force contractors to hire most or all of their employees from union hiring halls. They have to follow union work rules and pay into union pension and benefit programs. And non-union workers will either have to join a union or, um, or unfortunately, have to pay union dues as a condition of employment. So the result of this is that non-union contractors will not compete and not participate in the competitive bidding process. Well, there, there you go. He does, he does all this like two minutes of crying, just absolutely bawling about project labor agreements, claiming, oh, they raise the cost, which is not really true when you account for the fact that non-PLA projects go over budget and get behind schedule more often, talking about how it kills competition. And then at the end, after just like a simple, the most common sense question that a news anchor could ask which is, oh, are you saying that like you can't bid on PLAs? He admits it! He admits that he can bid on PLAs! He admits that non-union contractors can bid on project labor agreements exactly the same as union contractors. All they gotta do is freaking pay your workers! And you don't even have to pay your workers on all your projects just for the one that has a project labor agreement. Just like, literally... Literally, for one project, pay your workers. That's the only condition of having a project labor agreement, is for one project, for this one project, where you're going to be getting millions of dollars from the federal government if you are awarded the project, for this one freaking project, pay your workers, give them a pension, and follow safety rules. Right, yeah. I think it's not a lot to ask that if taxpayers are funding a project that the workers involved be paid a living wage, that they have benefits, that there are safety regulations in place so that not only are the workers kept safe, but the public is kept safe, mm-hmm. uh, both during the construction and once it's finished and we use the bridge or the road or whatever it may be, uh, and the fact that the people who are doing this work are well-trained and know what the hell they're doing. That's yep. not a lot to ask, and, and it's no. it's very low-hanging fruit. It's something that uh, you know I'll give credit to the Biden administration for doing that, mm-hmm. uh, and even something this modest – you know, attracts this kind of, uh, you know, opposition. And I, I couldn't help but laugh when he said something about their best firms. 
Best right. in what regard? Because it's not best in terms of the safety that you follow on the job. It's not the best in terms of the quality of workers you have with training. It's not the best in terms of how you pay people. So, oh, is it the best because you have the highest profit margins? Mm. Uh, is it the best because uh, if you're the CEO, it's the best? Uh, because I'm guessing he's not really talking about normal people who have to work for a living. Right, right. Yeah, no, of course not. Of course not. This is something paying their workers well, making sure they've got good benefits, following rules that will keep them safe. That's something that they cannot abide. So they just they just simply don't compete for project labor agreements because they can't stand the thought of paying their workers a wage that will keep them off of welfare. Like that, the thought of doing that is so foreign and repulsive to these people that they will take their ball home and walk away sooner than they will, um, sooner than they will try to apply for a project that would give them millions of dollars. And these are the people that Katie Britt is proud to have the endorsement of. So do with that information what you will. If you have anything to add, uh, we've still got the phone line open. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also text the program at the same number. You can leave us a voicemail throughout the week if you're listening to us on the podcast. And... um, you can send us an email on our website, tvlr.fm. All sorts of ways to get in contact with us. Let's go ahead and hit last week in Southern Labor really quick, though. Um, we weren't able – yet another segment that we were not able to get to uh, during the main show. So last week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week where we go over what happened last week in the labor movement in the South. We um, – we talked to uh, 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 we get the information from Jonah Furman from his newsletter Who Gets the Bird. You can read it at whogetsthebird.substack.com, where he compiles this for basically the whole labor movement in the United States. It's it's like everything. It's really really exhaustive um, and lots of good information. So I recommend reading it. In new organizing, in one of the biggest single weeks for the Starbucks workers, a whopping 526 workers at 20 stores in one week filed for elections with Workers United, in, including in the South, in Covington, Georgia, Durham, North Carolina, Birmingham, Alabama, and Newport News, Virginia. 105 drivers for Martin Brower, which handles McDonald's food supply chain, are organizing with Teamsters Local 391. 70 truck drivers for Cisco in Louisville, Kentucky, are unionizing with Teamsters Local 89. 35 workers for Packers Sanitation in Fort Worth, Texas, are organizing with UFCW Local 540. 14 workers who make talc for Magris Talc in Houston, Texas, are organizing with the Boilermakers. K-12 educators in Richmond, Virginia, are voting on whether or not to make the Richmond Education Association their official collective bargaining organization. The REA has been around since 1900, but now that the school board has legalized collective bargaining under a new state law, 
law, educators have to vote on whether REA should officially be handling negotiations. In Charlottesville, Virginia, teachers and support staff are one step behind Richmond presenting a resolution with majority worker support to the school board to also legalize collective bargaining. In election wins and losses, 62 workers who manufacture plastics for Selenese in Cantonment, Florida, joined IBEW Local 733 in a 34-19 vote. Nine baristas at Three Brothers Coffee in Nashville, Tennessee, voted 5-2 to two to join UFCW Local 1995. 18 drivers for Lind Gas in Farmers Branch, Texas, decertified Teamster Local 745 in a 5-8 vote. And flight attendants with Avalo Airlines, a small low-cost carrier that operates out of a couple dozen airports, have officially unionized with AFA-CWA under the National Mediation Board. In strikes and bargaining, Starbucks workers in Raleigh, North Carolina, held in action outside their store, protesting the targeted firing of worker leaders. 300 nurses with the D.C. Nurses Association struck Howard University Hospital in D.C. for 24 hours. A couple weeks back, the Teamsters came close to striking the Red Cross across the country, but reached a tentative agreement. Apparently, there, uh, that was just for the Teamsters, though, as the other unions are still putting out petitions for a fair contract. There's an interesting fight in small-town uh, Georgetown, South Carolina, over the fate of the Liberty Steel Mill. Steel Mill there, Steelworkers Local 7898, is hoping to avert a move by the city to permanently scale back the operation of the mill, which currently employs 60 or so workers, and to honor an agreement that would have increased the number of mill jobs to 150. Apparently, the fight goes back to the beginning of the pandemic when the mill was forced to shut down and is now being contested as having been abandoned. Uh, and, Adam, the NSO had a win in Florida? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've covered on this show that, at times, unions can behave like bosses. Uh, it's disappointing whenever we see folks in our own movement treat their employees the way the bosses do. So we had a great win uh, by the National Staff Organization and their Florida affiliate uh, down in Collier County. The Collier County Education Association is an affiliate of NEA. It's a teachers' union there. Uh, and they were just hit with a ULP that they're having to post at their office uh, that was filed by the NSO. Basically, the education local there was mistreating the staff and union-busting uh, their own staff. Uh, so... Shout out to my former union, the NSO, and my brothers and sisters down there in Florida for fighting the good fight and hopefully educating these educators uh, that if you're going to be part of the labor movement, you need to act like it and don't union bust your own employees. There you go. There you go. Um, so let's take a look at Amazon. Let's take a look at Amazon. Um one of the reasons that people say workers at Amazon need not unionize is uh, is because they've got it so good. They've got it so good. Never mind the fact that uh, union warehouse workers make significantly more money than they do. And uh, never mind the fact that having a say in your workplace is, is just something that 
every single worker should have by right? And never mind the fact that if you work on Easter, this is how you will be rewarded. Thank you for coming in on Easter Sunday. A message said at the at an Amazon warehouse. Um, Thank you for coming in on Easter Sunday. We are going to run a contest for P2. Anyone picking over a 310 rate, which is no doubt extremely high, I really don't know, will be entered in a raffle for a snack pack. Entered in a raffle, entered for a chance to win a snack pack, which is a water or soda and a candy. This is what the message said. And a candy or bag of chips of your choice. Good luck, everyone, and thank you. I mean, I like I I feel the freedom there with the opportunity to get a candy. Um. I don't know why. Wow. I mean, how generous of them. The One of the most powerful, wealthiest corporations on planet Earth. And uh, they're giving away a bag of chips yep. or a handy to a lucky winner. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, how generous. I mean, treating workers like that, why would they ever even think about needing a union? Right, right. Yeah. And I... You know. <laughs> They could get a candy bar. Maybe, yeah. I mean, if they work really hard Maybe. on a holiday and they're the lucky winner, they could get a candy bar and a soda on on Jeff Bezos' dime. How generous of them. I mean, see, like the a raffle for $2. I mean, this would be embarrassing if this was like a even a small... Nonprofit, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Our, our small business with low margins. It would be pretty embarrassing to to do this. Um, yeah, but coming from Amazon, it's I I, I don't know uh, how the workers there felt about that when they walked in and saw it, but I can certainly imagine how they felt about it because I know how I would feel about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in addition to that slap in the face and all the other things that we just mentioned, Amazon is an incredibly unsafe place to work. A new report from the Strategic Organizing Center um, gathered information about uh, about the injury rates at Amazon facilities, um, and it is uh, it's bad, folks. It's really. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I don't know how else to say it, really bad. Workers at Amazon warehouses are not only injured more frequently than in non-Amazon warehouses, they are also injured more severely. In 2020, for every 100 Amazon workers, there were 5.9 serious injuries requiring the worker to either miss work entirely or be placed on light or restricted duty. This rate is nearly 80%, almost double higher than the serious injury rate for all other employers in the warehousing industry, which is 3.3 per 100. I mean, six injuries per 100 workers in 2020. That's almost like a a 1 in 20. That is higher than a 1 in 20 rate, right? Isn't that higher? That's higher than 1 in 20, which is, um, I mean, I don't know how many of y'all have ever played D&D, uh, but 
I've played D and D, and you get a and and in D and D they have a dice, a twenty sided dice um, that you play for for chance things, right? And if you get a nat twenty. It's really good, and if you get an at one, that's really bad. Like, if you roll a 20 or you roll a one, that's really bad. Uh, and that happens, like, a reasonable amount. It's not all the time, but everybody who has ever played D&D has rolled a nat 20. So, it, I mean, this is just, it's astounding. It's, that is an insane rate of injury. Absolutely insane. In 2020, Amazon workers who experienced lost time injuries were forced off work for an average of 46.3 days, which is <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. That is the average time that you lose if you're injured at an Amazon warehouse. It's a month and a half. That's a week longer than the average recovery time for workers injured in the general warehouse industry, and more than two weeks longer than the recovery time for the average worker who suffered a lost time injury. Just, I mean, this is, it, it, it's really the report is, um, is a lot. It, it's, there's a lot of really good information in there. I would recommend folks checking it out because uh, it really underscores the necessity of organizing Amazon. Because Amazon clearly, clearly does not care about their workers. They just, they clearly, they don't care about their workers. Um, and so workers are going to have to change it themselves. Workers are going to have to change it themselves. Um, and they're doing that. They're doing that. They have won a union election on Staten Island with the Amazon Labor Union. Uh, they came very close in Alabama, of all places, in Bessemer. And they've got the Amazon Labor Union begins voting on Monday for another Amazon facility in New York. So we'll see. Hopefully this takes off. Amazon isn't taking that lying down, though, and they are trying every trick in the book to keep workers down, including illegal tricks like firing workers for organizing. Like firing workers for organizing. They, The NLRB reinstated a worker who was fired for organizing. And the because it's against the law to do that and so the NLRB enforced the law they had Amazon reinstate this worker at the Staten Island location in New York and uh the House GOP Education and Labor Committee was really upset about that let's throw that statement up adam if you could um they were really upset about that. Let me pull up this statement because it's just, oh man, it's so funny. Um, the, uh, sorry about this, guys. I, I've got it. If you want it. me to, to, no, I got it now. Okay. So the NLRB. This is a statement from Virginia Fox on the GOP House Education and Labor Committee. They tweeted this statement saying the title was the NLRB keeps playing footsies with unions they keep playing footsie with unions 
um, as if that's a bad thing. The NL- and, and the statement reads, the NLRB is being used as a cudgel to allow the Biden administration to advance an agenda that hurts workers and job creators by intervening in the recent case of a terminated Amazon employee who openly harassed a fellow co-worker. Oh, wow, that sounds bad. The NLRB has proven that it will put union interests above ensuring that employees remain free from harassment. Now, of course... This worker did not harass anybody. They were just supporters of the union. And so they were fired, and, uh, and the Republicans were very sad about that. And uh, the Twitter account for People for Bernie, uh, they, <laughs> they corrected, they basically translated the statement. We can put that graphic up now. And they titled it, Virginia Fox Cries About the NLRB Doing Its Job Even Though She Spent All Those Years Defunding It. And the statement reads, The NLRB, wah, 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 Biden administration, wah, 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 workers, wah. By wah, Amazon, I'm crying about it, wah. I'm sad the NLRB has wah. Wah, wah, no. Representative Virginia Fox. And that's... You know, that, that's basically uh, pretty accurate depiction. Yeah, that's that's about as substantive as the original statement, I would say. That's about as substantive as the original statement. Um, and the uh, so all of this union busting that they're doing, though, the union busting that the Amazon is doing and that the. Republicans in the House of Representatives are crying about the NLRB slapping them on the wrist for, all of this union busting is subsidized by the taxpayer. As, who was it in Jacobin that wrote that article, that really, really good article? It was Matthew Cunningham Cook and Julia Rock. They point out that Of course, and everyone knows this, Amazon, every time they build a facility, they get millions, millions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies, and nearly all of those subsidies stipulate that Amazon must comply with the law. And so now, an attorney for the Amazon Labor Union has filed a complaint asking the New York's Democratic Attorney General to investigate whether Amazon has violated labor laws and thus nullified its eligibility for subsidies. So that would be pretty good. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, way to go, ALU, for, for pursuing that little thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't have even thought about that. Yeah, I think that's great, though, to expose the ways in which Amazon and so many other companies are subsidized by the public, by the state. And as we've discussed, like with PL project labor agreements, you know, the state can put strings attached to that kind of subsidy, mm-hmm. um, which is better than none, none at all. Um, no strings at all. Unfortunately, it seems to be the kind of Alabama way, but... Uh, we'll see what happens with this New York case. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one more thing that I wanted to, and then we'll wrap up. We'll wrap up after this last story uh, because it's something that I've been I've been meaning to get to for a couple weeks, and we've been running out of time. So um, this is a follow-up on something that we talked about a couple of months ago, or maybe it was about a month ago. If you'll remember Global Strategies Group, they're a big 
Democratic consulting firm that helped Amazon try, unsuccessfully, to bust the Amazon labor union in New York on Staten Island. And it turns out politicians are not their only clients. From an article in The Lever, in addition to its Democratic clients, the firm has also worked for a number of labor unions in recent years, including the National Education Association, the International Brotherhood of Carpenters, the Actors and Artists of the AFL-CIO, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 98 in Philadelphia, the SEIU Local 775 in Washington State, and the American Federation of School Supervisors Local 1 in New York, according to Department of Labor Records and Federal Campaign Finance Reports. The Lever contacted all those unions to ask whether GSG's work with Amazon would affect their relationship going forward, and none responded. However... CNBC also reached out to these groups. CNBC reached out to a dozen politicians and PACs listed as clients of GSG in filings with the Federal Election Commission, and none of the elected officials provided CNBC a comment. Of the labor groups, though, one of them, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, said that it will continue to work with the Global Strategies Group. Wow. That's very disappointing. That is unacceptable. That is absolutely unacceptable. Um, If you know any carpenters, or if you're a carpenter, especially if you're a carpenter, you need to contact your international, because that's unacceptable. I mean, that's like, you just simply can't do that. That is... That is... um, that's just totally beyond the pale. You cannot be using firms that make their money busting up unions. You can't do that. And let's be honest. It's not like they're the only game in town, right? You can. There are dozens of these insane groups that would be willing to steal your money for nothing about for giving you nothing of value like if you really want to just flush money down the drain for worthless dc consulting firms if you're just dead set on doing that there are plenty of them out there and you don't have to use ones that actively oppose your brothers and sisters that are trying to get the same benefits that you have through your union if you're dead set on flushing your money down the toilet, do it with someone else. Totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. Uh, But that's going to be it. That's going to be it for us today. Uh, We appreciate your time. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can buy our new hat. Uh, Adam, let's throw that hat up on the stream as we're we're closing out. Um, You can buy our new hat. Like I said at the beginning of the show, um, they should have the print shop should have the delivery today saturday the 23rd so hopefully it will be shipped by the print shop next week so if you want it to be shipped to you next week then go ahead and place your order tonight you can do that on tvlr.fm or uh make a one-time or recurring donation on our website as well to help us stay on the air our listeners are our number one source of funding Uh, Make sure that you like and subscribe on YouTube. 
if you haven't. You give us a rating on the podcast feed if you haven't. You share our stuff. You follow it. All that good stuff. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, then you can do that as well. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. That is going to be it for us this week. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And we'll see you next week when we're talking to Kim Kelly about her book. Really exciting. Really going to be a great interview. So uh, make sure you tune in for next week's show. We'll see you then.